Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are bringing you the best minds in functional medicine, and I assure you today is no exception. New Frontiers is able to offer these deeper drill-down conversations with content geared toward the professional audience because we are proudly sponsored by two companies that I use in my practice every day, Metagenics and Biotics Research Corporation. A little bit about Metagenics, their mission is to lead the movement in making personalized nutritional intervention the standard of care in the treatment and prevention of disease and the promotion of optimal health. For over 30 years, Metagenics has been dedicated to scientific discovery, innovative products, unparalleled quality, education, and practitioner partnerships to support lifestyle functional nutrition. For more information, visit them at metagenics.com. New Frontiers is also proud to be sponsored by Biotics Research Corporation. The foundation of Biotics Research Corporation is innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts and product development, utilizing advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques to develop and produce gluten-free nutritional products of superior quality and effectiveness. The advantages of Biotics Research Vegetable Culture Base include biologically active, whole food, consistent disintegration for proper assimilation, suitability for strict vegetarians, and improved product stability. Biotics research emulsified nutrients represent a more cost-effective means of delivering nutrients than mycelized, dry, or oily preparations and are safely and more completely absorbed. Biotics research provides the best of science and nature. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com. Hey everybody, welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. I'm Dr. Kara Fitzgerald and today we are circling back to talking about the ketogenic diet as a therapeutic um, intervention in cancer. And I'm with Miriam Kalamian today. She is a board certified nutrition consultant, educator, and author specializing in the implementation of ketogenic therapies. Uh, Miriam, like myself, is inspired by the work of Thomas Seyfried, PhD. We actually podcasted with him back in August 2016. So uh, check that out if you're not familiar with Dr. Seyfried's work. He's really put this on on the map with his uh, animal studies up at Boston College. Anyway, Miriam is a leading voice in the keto movement and draws on a decade of experience to provide comprehensive guidelines that specifically address the many diet and lifestyle challenges associated with the cancer diagnosis. And folks, I know many clinicians are listening to this, uh, this podcast, and we will indeed address as many issues that we as clinicians face in practice um, as possible today. So Miriam's passion for helping others uh, implement this diet comes directly from her personal experience with her son, Rafi, who was diagnosed with a brain tumor in December 2004. Uh, beyond cancer, Miriam integrates nutritional strategies with metabolic therapies and lifestyle modifications to develop personalized treatments that address a broad spectrum of conditions currently considered intractable, including age-related neurodegenerative and bariatric diseases. She's the author of the new and very comprehensive book, Keto for Cancer, and that's Chelsea Green, and it will be out uh, in October, next month. It's a great, great, great book. We've had the opportunity to actually uh, do a little bit of uh, peer reviewing and editing with Miriam. So anyway, very warm welcome to you, Miriam. Thank you so much for joining me today. Kara, I'm thrilled to be here. You know how much I respect your work. Well, it's definitely a mutual admiration society. I'm uh, grateful <laughs> to have you in my, in my tribe. Okay, so oh, you. you've done just endless amounts of work. I know, it, you know, this was really born out of, you know, just 
just you're you're working with your son i mean just this really this personal powerful experience and you you know, you talk about it in the beginning of your book. Do you want to just give us a, a little bit? I, first, folks, get, definitely get Miriam's book when it's out because it's, very, it's extremely useful for clinicians and patients alike. It's, it's meaty enough for clinicians and patients who want the deep drill down, but it's also accessible for, you know, people who just want the, you know, the what to do. So anyway, you talk about Rafi in your book, but can you give us a little bit of background, you know, a little bit of your story before we jump into uh, talking about the diet itself? Sure. Um, you know, my son was uh, diagnosed, he was four years old, uh, diagnosed with uh, brain cancer in 2004, tumor the size of an orange in this little guy's head. Mm. And uh, we we did what we were told to do because we were, we were basically, we were misled. Um, about his prognosis, and we just did what we were supposed to do, which is basically 14 months of uh, weekly chemotherapy. And that didn't stop it, neither did anything else that we, that we tried. And here we are now in the spring of 2007. Uh, we've exhausted all the, the potential therapeutic options, and now they're going to just move him to palliative treatment. But that would have meant... Um, you know, hospitalizations and transfusions and infections mm. um, with very little hope that it was really going to slow this down. And it was just by accident, Kara, totally yeah. by accident. I was looking at one of the drugs that he was coming off of at that point. And um, because it was extremely toxic, it's cytoxin, yes, uh, extremely yes. toxic to the kidneys. And, um, and I had found something I wanted to print. I couldn't print it that day. I go back a few days later and on science direct, of course, there's a different, I mean, science daily, there's a different story that day. And it was Thomas Seyfried's research. So mm. I, I was not looking for a cancer diet. I was not looking for an alternative treatment. Um, I, I was just researching a drug he was on and I found this study and I was just blown away because for anybody not familiar with it, um, Dr. Seafried references uh, Linda Nabling's work in the mid-1990s, which she did with two children with brain tumors. And I'm, I'm looking at this and just stunned that I didn't know about it. Mm -hmm. Give me just the thumbnail of that, of, of, of her work. And then obviously ah, okay. you went on to, I know, I know we don't have a lot of time on it, but you've got to answer this question. We've, we, everybody wants to know who's listening. So we have to just finish this and then we'll get, get okay. to questions. But give me a thumbnail. Oh, Linda Nabling was uh, a, a doctoral student at Case Western and she uh, was a registered dietitian and she knew about the ketogenic diet for epilepsy and she had some speculation as to uh, what it might do in terms of um, brain cancer. So she uh, took her a long time, but she recruited two children. Uh, pet imaging was fairly new back then, and it was what they used for brain tumor. So she uh, she recruited these two children with um, advanced, uh, you know, high grade tumors, um, and uh, and she did an eight week study. That's all it was, where she put them on a ketogenic diet, and one child was in treatment, one was not. Uh, and at the end of this eight weeks, when they did another PET scan, comparing it to the baseline scan, there was a greater than 20% reduction in the uptake of glucose to the tumor site in both children. Wow. Both so, children. Yeah, amazing. One of them, 
Yeah, one of them kind of got lost to, to follow up, but the other one um, survived for at least a number of years. For all I know, that child could still be alive. So she published this work and in, the, um, in the American College of Nutrition Journal in 1995. And, uh, it, and then she left Case Western. She had her doctorate. She went to work for the NIH, and the two other people that were on the project went off to pursue other things. The whole thing just got dropped. And um, it wasn't until uh, Dr. Seyfried, in looking at the ketogenic diet originally for other purposes, um, found that study and was intrigued by it. And so that was part of the, the stimulus for him um, doing his re starting his research on, on mouse model of glioma. And if I hadn't found it that day, uh, I would not have been aware of it because it was, it was just brand new out there. There'd been one paper before that, but well, a couple papers before that, but nothing that had grabbed attention as much as that one paper did wow. in 2007. Yes, really serious, very serendipitous. And um, mm -hmm. so you you implemented the diet with Rafi. He was your first. Oh, yeah. So so this is how it went down. So this is, a, a, you know, February, I find this study. At the same week that I find out that he's, he's failed his clinical trial, they are keeping him in it because they don't want to lose numbers along the way. So they're still going to give him these drugs for a few weeks until they officially kick him out. But in the meantime, I'm studying up on this diet and I run it by my husband like, because he could find the flaw in anything. And he says, no, you know, let's just go for it. What do we got to lose? All right. So he came off the study and the next day I fasted him. He immediately went into ketosis really strong ketosis. I was scared to death to do this because we were not being monitored. And I don't suggest that people do this not monitored. Um, but, uh, you know, I was in Connecticut. I live in Montana. I had, you know, nothing to help me out there. Nobody would touch us because we were off, you know, we were off label using this. Um, and so it, you know, I was on my own, yes. um, basically with a few, with some information, a Johns Hopkins book and a couple of parents on a and your website. Background. Or, your background, you no, were my not... background was nothing. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, -uh. Okay. uh, retail business and education early on. Um, okay. but, uh, this was in three months. So we had a scan at the end of March and then we had a scan at the end of June and the scan at the end of June showed the tumor had finally stopped growing, had shrunk back some. The metabolic activity of the tumor was greatly reduced. And this is, you know, like totally unexpected. I, I really didn't expect the diet to work when conventional therapies hadn't. Mm. And we had gone through a number of them and they mm. hadn't worked. Mm. So uh, I was blown away and, and I really needed to, to help. And I got uh, Beth from the Charlie Foundation got us set up with the diet, but I realized that if I was going to do this long-term, I needed to understand it. So let me just a month say after that, Charlie foundation is a great research, uh, excuse me, resource, um, you know, for diets, um, for epilepsy, but the, I know they've branched out and they, and you've been working with them, but, um, is it charliefoundation.com? People can go and check it out. .org. .org. Charliefoundation.org. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great resources. They're adding to it all the time. Uh, so, it, you know, that's where I got the confidence to move forward with it, but I didn't have enough information and nobody really wanted to get into it at that point. So I went to, I enrolled, I mean, within a month I was enrolled in the graduate program at Eastern Michigan and, um, you know, was, was here I am you know, starting a biochemistry course and, uh, and it just, 
with two and a half years of, uh, of just intense, totally threw myself into it. My son was doing great. He was going to school. So it allowed me time for studying and, uh, he just did. He just did wonderfully on the diet for about three years. Yeah. Um, you know, he had a downturn, and then we uh, we uh, he came out of that. And I talk about that in my book, yeah. and um, because it was to me, I still we still don't know uh, what put him down, what you know started the process, and what brought him back to us. But uh, he was on some version of the diet the whole time, yeah. and. Uh, quality of life was so much better. We were able to do things with him that we wouldn't have been able to, to do if we'd been tied to an oncology clinic. Right, right. Well, you guys had already moved into basically palliative. I mean, they ran out of intervention. Oh, they were trying to, they, we didn't have to go palliative because uh, he didn't need any treatment once we started the diet. He, the well, oncologist well, I, mean, was, I mean, his prognosis prior to starting the diet was that he was palliative. not, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he was not expected to survive for many months. No. Okay. No, he had a, uh, officially it was a, a one in three chance of, um, no, a, 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 yeah, one in three chance of any response and a one in 10 chance that the response, and just response, we got a better response with diet, but they're just talking response. Right. One in 10 chance that the response would last for a year and a half. So uh, this was not a, a pretty picture we were facing. Yes. So you moved him onto the diet and he was able to resume school. He did well oh, yeah. for years. For years. And even after that downturn, and then he came back to us, and then we had another year of just bliss. And uh, we went camping in Mexico. We did all kinds of fun stuff together. And I'll tell you, that extra year of uh, memories right in there, you know, yeah. that's, what I, that's what I hold in my heart right now. Mm, thank you. God, thank you so much for sharing that. It's really moving. Um, ugh, I'm like tearing up. It's extremely moving, Miriam. And I... Um, you know, just working, you know, being able to look at some of the, you know, the pieces of the book that you've asked us to just review with you and just having you be kind of a part of our space where we talk. And about I so her. appreciate that. Yeah. Well, well, you know, my point is, is that your passion, you know, and your, and your stick-to-itiveness and your drill down, I mean, can, it just comes from this deeper force that you have that you're bringing to it. Oh yeah. You know, I, I want to get this right and I yeah. want to keep getting it writer and writer. You know, it's not just what we know now. It's what we, what we're learning every day. There's new stuff coming out. Right. And I just try to incorporate as much of it as I can um, into uh, my work with people and, and, and what I put out there in writing. Yes. Oh, wonderful. Okay. So folks, I will, um, you know, I'll definitely have links to Miriam's website and the Nebling paper from 1995 will be on our uh, show notes. org is there as well. Okay. So, you know, you've talked about some of the science to support it. You know, why don't you give me a little bit of a, you know, an update since Nebling? Oh, so uh, I I think the most significant thing that's happened is the um, the realization that it's not just about starving cancer of glucose. If it was, if that was all that was going on, then um, you know it really would not be an effective uh, approach to cancer uh, because we can only get low uh, levels so low there's a physiological norm for glucose that we have mm -hmm. to stay in and our bodies take care of that force so yes. uh, if if we're not taking in dietary carbohydrate um for fuel 
we're going to make ketone bodies, which are great brain fuel and other cell fuel. We're going to make them in the liver, but we're also going to make glucose in the liver. Yes. And that glucose is sufficient for everything that, it, that glucose is needed for and without symptoms of hypoglycemia. So there's got to be something else going on. And the something else going on is, you know, meal composition, but it's also meal timing. So by going to, a, you know, a ketogenic diet, you are inhibiting the pathways associated, some of the pathways associated with cancer progression, like mTOR and IGF-1, you know, very anabolic. Uh, and you are upregulating pathways that are associated with the health of the cell. And by throwing in meal timing in there, you're also in encouraging autophagy, um, mitophagy. So, uh, it, you know, you're impacting a number of, of pathways. You just got to do it right. You can't just pick up a Atkins diet and think you're going to, you know, do something as far as your cancer goes. Yeah. Okay. So, um, it just, what's your, when, when articulating what the ketogenic diet is, I think that the bulk of our listeners are familiar with the calorie restricted ketogenic diet for cancer. Um, but you know, really quickly just explain, you know, maybe Seyfried's core thesis or what we're thinking about why the ketogenic diet works, just what that, what that is. And okay, then sure. I'm going to ask you about timing, meal timing and composition kind of go from there. Okay, great. So um, what uh, Dr. Seyfried has kind of focused on in his research and continues to focus on is fermentation. And uh, so a normal cell it, uh, is going to take glucose in and uh, it's going to convert it to pyruvate because it really can't do anything with just glucose. So it has to be converted to pyruvate. So one molecule of glucose two molecule, is cleaved into two molecules of pyruvate. And generally, most of that pyruvate then is transported into the mitochondria where it's oxidized for energy. Very efficient process. There's a little bit of it that stays in the cytoplasm of the cell and is fermented for energy, but it's also important because it's recycling some of the intermediates like uh, uh, NADH and FADH2, I think mm -hmm. specifically. So, um, and those things are going to be needed in the uh, mitochondria too. So, you know, those, it, it's a pretty well orchestrated scene in a normal cell, but in a, uh, a cell that has uh, lost some of that mitochondrial function, um, things start to degenerate pretty quickly. So if that pyruvate, for any reason, and there's lots of reasons why, uh, it doesn't get oxidized properly, it can be uh, enzymatic, uh, it can be the structure of the mitochondrial membranes, there's a number of things going on in there that, that uh, interfere with the normal process. So instead, all this pyruvate that, um, that's in the cell gets fermented. And the fermentation process um, produces a lot of lactic acid. So the lactic acid in that, you know, a small amount in a normal cell is okay. But the, this excessive amount uh, has to be shuttled out of the cell, otherwise it's going to kill the cell. So shuttled out into the microenvironment of the cell. And so putting an acid in the microenvironment of the cell, uh, you know, it is a perfect environment for um, disease progression. So you're going to get this, uh, you know, biosynthesis that's going to you know, help to accumulate this tumor mass. Cells are going to proliferate. Uh, they're even going to spread to new areas. So that's cancer. That's disease progression in cancer, that acidic microenvironment. 
So, um, and that happens with uh, Dr. Seyfried has uh, speculated that that's happening with uh, glutamine as well, that uh, succinate is the acid that it produces. Um, but it has the same kind of uh, effect in the microenvironment. Mm. So, um, so what, what we're doing is just lowering the availability of glucose and reducing some of those uh, things that um, can, uh, uh, can be anabolic like the uh, a rise in a rise in glucose met by a rise in insulin insulin levels high insulin levels associated with high igf1 um increased receptors on cancer cells you know causing uh yes. rapid uh cell proliferation right. uh so we're interrupting that process and uh and that's the that's the primary thing to, to look at. There's a, there's a lot more little things here and there going on. Um, but it's, what's important to know about this, too, is that the ketones, which are excellent brain fuel, can also be used by most other cells. And there are specific enzymes within the mitochondria that um, aid in the, um, in the use of ketones for energy. And they do not produce as much ROS as uh, as the either fatty acid or glucose metabolism. Mm, right, right. All right, so listen, I want to just kind of summarize this for people. Normally functioning cell in the mitochondria, um, glucose is converted to pyruvate, or at least, or actually in the, in the cytosol, and then pyruvate is shuttled in and used to um, turn, the Krebs, turn the Krebs cycle, and ultimately the electrons are you know, sent over to the electron transport chain and ATP is the product. So that's cellular respiration in a normal functioning cell. That's mitochondrial um, action happening. Cellular respiration, ATP production um, is the, you know, is the end result. And in a, in the, in the, in the disease process, I mean, it's not, this is not exclusive to cancer, but there's a breakdown in mitochondrial function there's a there's an acquired mitochondropathy i guess we could probably say and you know and there's and no longer is um are we able to generate atp in, in the same way and you know so one of the ways so when we are not in you know aerobic oxidative phosphorylation we generate lactic acid i mean that's normal when we're working out really intensely and we have an accumulation of lactic acid because there's not enough oxygen to to produce some uh, ATP versus cellular respiration. So there's, there's an accumulation of that. But in the case of cancer, and I think, you know, this underlying fundamental mechanism can be seen in other conditions as well, uh, to varying extents, there's the that tumor microenvironment where there's so much research going on, we see this extremely acidic milieu, this accumulation of the lactic acid and all sorts of reactive oxygen. Um, oxidative species and so on and so forth. And that microenvironment is just horribly damaged and um, and it allows for the proliferation of the damaged cells and the utilization of glucose for uh, more rapid um, fermentation and growth and so forth. And, and, and then the, just the, the, the increase of tumor size and, and the proliferation of cancer versus, versus wellness. So, and, and I'm not, I, I don't know that I'm wrapping my arms entirely and you can, you can clarify this better. I don't know if I've said this all together before, but um, 
uh, you know, carbohydrates in, and, and the, 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 as you said, the, the, there are more insulin receptors on the tumor cells. So they're just like targets for sucking up glucose and just using it preferentially. And that's why we give glucose actually on scans that, you know, because we see that hot metabolic activity at the side of the tumor because they just so uh, vociferously um, take up the glucose and and so, therefore, but they are not efficient. Many, many cancers are not efficient at using um, ketone bodies. And so if we switch over to using ketones as our metabolic fuel, we actually turn this dynamic around. We stop feeding the tumors. Would you, is there anything to add to that, or is there a clarification you need there? No, I think you, I think you covered it. You know, people, one thing that people ask me um, often is uh, whether or not their particular cancer is going to respond. And quite honestly, I mean, we've talked about that. We yes. don't really know for a yes. fact whether, you know, any particular cancer is going to respond. But my, my thing on that is uh, it's a, you know, what have you got to lose? Try it for a couple of months if your cancer's not responding to the diet change. Then, um, then at least you gave it a try. You made Absolutely. a commitment and you gave it a try. Yes, yeah. yes, and it, and you know, generally we're following some tumor. There's there's been at least a one or or maybe a couple tumor markers have been identified that we can track closely, or we can certainly track imaging, um, and right. and we'll and we'll get feedback relatively quickly. All right, so you gave us the thumbnail. Now circling back to some of the science. I mean, people are you know scientists are looking at this. So we do. There is there is research out now beyond. Um, you know, nibblings and beyond, you know, Dr. Safri oh, yeah. to suggest that this, so, so talk about that. Well, the, the problem with the science is that the people who are really committed to this and believe in it are, if they're within the, the conventional cancer care community, uh, they are um, ostracized if they speak out in support of it. I know uh, one person who um, didn't get a job that he thought he was going to get, and another one that was relieved of her position, actually two that were relieved of their p position for speaking out in support mm. of the diet. So um, so in the conventional um, medical world, uh, it's going to be a slow process because what I hear is uh, <laughs> what I hear is there's there's no evidence to support it. Well, there is preclinical evidence. There are case studies, mm -hmm. but the, yes. the, tr the clinical trials uh, just aren't going to be there for a couple of reasons. One is finances. Who's going to finance a, a diet study? Uh, but some of these really passionate people are trying to do this within a, just a single institution, usually a university, and the recruitment levels are just too low. So these end up being very underpowered. And I think they just aren't dialing the diet in properly. They're mm. not, they're, the IRBs uh, are so opposed, the institutional review boards are so opposed to um, the thought of somebody with cancer losing weight that the calorie-restricted ketogenic diet just is not a part of most of these uh, trials that are going on. They're trying to do this full calorie. And if you're doing this full calorie as an adjunct to cancer, it's really hard to deal with the effects of the chemotherapy and at the same time be taking in a ton of fat, even if you don't need to because you're carrying all that excess weight around with you anyway. Right. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of those institutional obstacles yes. where it's thriving more is uh, in your world, Kara, 
Yes. Uh, that's most of what I, you know, most of the people that contact me um, for, you know, direction with the diet, you know, are not medical doctors unless they're integrative or functional medical doctors. Yes. Um, they, yeah, they're in the naturopathic world. So, well, it takes a lot of courage for patients, you know, and patients' families, because families uh-huh. are really an intimate part of this picture, to be willing to, you know, stand up to their oncology team and oh yeah hold, I, you know i can speak fast to, that. to this it's it's really I, scary it, it is it, it's, it's a very numbers. intimidating i have a whole presentation that i just uh, i gave in austin this last weekend uh at the ketocon mm-hmm. and uh and uh it's about skeptics and saboteurs and uh and you know how they can get in the way and sometimes the skeptics and saboteurs are you know populated among your family yes. um or you can be your own worst enemy because you're listening to too many sources. It's too confusing. You don't know. Most of the diet information is for you know weight loss instead of for cancer, and you just don't know what you're supposed to be doing. Yes. Yeah, it is. And and you know, and and there is concern around weight loss, but there's a very strong difference between the mechanism underlying cachexia versus exactly. Um, you know, the weight loss associated with, with taking this diet on. So, but listen, before, because I do want to talk about that, and I know we have people have questions around it, but I just wanted to circle back the, so you talked about meal composition and meal timing as being a really fundamental piece to being able to get this diet right. So just say a few things about that. Okay. Um, So people get it in terms of the carbohydrate, at least uh, on the surface. So they're looking at the, uh, the, um, weight loss world um, or the fitness world. And they're going, yeah, 20 or 30 grams of carbohydrate a day. Um, In my little cancer world, that might have to be as low as 12 grams of carbohydrate a day for somebody who has brain cancer. We really need to like to, to dial it in very differently than, um, than uh, a diet for weight loss. And then I said, people get the the carb part pretty easily. Um, They don't get the protein part as, as uh, quickly. So that needs a little more coaching and supervision. They generally start out with about twice the amount of protein that they need. And, uh, and that can, you know, uh, go ahead. Just tell me, I'm so sorry, but just give me the background on why we're restricting protein because it's not necessarily restricted in other ketogenic programs. Right. Um, we're restricting protein because uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, the mTOR and IGF-1 are critical pathways in cancer progression. And by restricting protein, that nutrient sensing that goes on, uh, the body says it's not time to build, you know, so, and it, and it shuts down those activities, including the ones related to cancer. Uh, so that's, that's one thing that's happening with protein. The other is if we're eating an excess amount of protein, the excess is going to be recycled into glucose. And, and somebody losing weight, that may not be a big deal unless they have some intense uh, um, issues, metabolic issues. But in cancer, it can be a big deal. And then the third thing is certain proteins, uh, dairy proteins and uh, egg proteins, are meant to be anabolic. They're taking little baby animals and growing them into big yes. ones. And so you get an insulin response, even if you're not getting the, you know, even in the absence of the glucose response, you're getting an insulin response. And again, that's associated with IGF-1. Right. So, and it also suppresses ketone production. Right. 
Right. Um, okay. So diet is you, you, we're going extremely low in the carbs. We're going low in protein for those reasons. As low as we can go in protein. Yeah. As yep. you know, that's a case by case basis. We have to figure that one out. And then loads of fat. Um, yeah. yeah. Only people don't need to overeat fat if they're carrying a lot of weight. They can eat reasonable amounts as long as they have a sustainable, um, you know, amount of weight loss. We don't want to dump too much into the into the um, too many of those toxins that are stored in fat into the body at once. Um, so, but, do you get that, folks? Slow, slower weight loss if you can manage that. So, you've got somebody who presents to you with um, with cancer, and they still have uh, some degree of body fat that you can work with. So, they're going to be actually using that fat as you know to liberate their to to produce ketones for for a while. But you don't. But you want to keep it slow, as Miriam said, so that you're not liberating the toxins present in the adipose. Yeah, go ahead. And, and when I say that, then people will say, well, what about fasting? I hear that fasting can cure cancer. And um, boy, that's a whole, that's a whole other can of worms right there. Um, because I, I do believe, you know, a lot of people that contact me want to start with a faster. They're just so overwhelmed by this diagnosis they just yes. handed and and so they want to start with a fast and i'm and i'm totally supportive of that but i'm very picky about um the circumstances in which they should fast and uh so there's a, a lot of like caveats and disclaimers to throw in there um but if they can do it it is a way to, to for them to get some self-control back over this diagnosis and yes. to feel like they're really doing something. And at the same time, they're going to make the shift into ketosis a lot faster if they are fasting. Yes. Um, but once they, you know, once they are done with the fast, I want them to have a plan in place so that they're not just going back to doing what they were doing. So, um, so, so yes. that's a, that, that, those, that first week or so is so critical. The first two or three weeks beyond that are also critical because that's the, kind of a make or break for people. Right, right. Um, give me, I, I know many patients come to my practice who have done the fasting or some, some sort of version, and then they've put themselves on the diet and they usually hit some sort of a wall of intolerance or challenge and then they show up here. Um, and I think that's probably true with you. But give me some of the caveats. I know people, again, they'll find this in your book. But just throw out a couple that would that would caution you towards supporting somebody jumping in a fast immediately. Well, I think if somebody is underweight or malnourished, it's not a good idea. Yes. Wait till you are in ketosis and have you know stabilized all that, and then once you're in ketosis, a fast is not going to um, degrade protein. So you're not going to degrade muscle mass um, as as uh, rapidly as you would um, just coming straight from a standard diet. So, uh, you know, that's, that's one consideration. Right. Yeah. Right. The other thing is, um, you know, I'm, I, I'm careful in terms of, is it going to be safe for this person? Um, or are they the caregiver? Are they the parent of young children and there's nobody else in the house? So what happens if they have a problem with the fasting uh, and, you know, they got little children in the house? So I'm very concerned about that. It doesn't happen very often, but it's uh, significant when it does. So, uh, but other than that, I, you know, it, of older people, I don't believe that older people um, do well with fasting for the same uh, reason as uh, just coming from a standard diet because they lose too much muscle mass and an older yeah. person has a much harder time um, regaining 
if they can, regaining that muscle mass. All right. And we can get people into a good, robust ketosis without doing fasts. I mean, mo- I would say most yep. of the time I'm, you know, it's, it's somewhat the exception that I'm recommending that I'm finding people to be fit for fasting. So even though I, I support it theoretically full on, I do think I, I hear you with regard to your precautions. We really need to pay attention to that, especially muscle loss and, you know, just the ability to, to handle such a jolt. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Talk to me about meal timing. You mentioned that as being extremely important in getting this diet right. Uh, yeah. I, 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 I don't think that the diet is as effective if you eat every waking hour. Um, I realize that there's some people that have to eat small and frequent meals, but I still like to see it be done in a smaller eating window because there is just plenty of science out there. Yes. That um, shows that uh, that longer overnight fasting um, upregulates autophagy. And in the upregulation of autophagy, that's taken out damaged cells and cancer is damaged cells. But it's also taking out other damaged cells that are causing inflammation and other problems in the body. So, you know, it's serving a really good purpose for everybody, I think, to uh, to. Uh, you know, practice that daily intermittent fasting. And, uh, you know, for more vulnerable people, I keep that eating window wider. But I always suggest that um, people don't eat within three to four hours of bedtime, and that they or just even lying down, and that they wait for an hour or two, at least in the, you know, after they get up in the morning before they uh, eat real food, you know, bulletproof coffee serves in the interim. And, uh, mm-hmm. And I think that's a, you know, uh, a wonderful way to start the morning, actually. And uh, it will bring down that um, rise in glucose stimulated by cortisol, you know, the dawn phenomenon. It, it will bring yeah. that down and it'll boost your ketones at the same time. And then you go into that first meal of the day a few hours later. Um, just folks, just talking about the dawn phenomenon, we've been dialoguing about this a lot. You And Seyfried didn't see this or doesn't see it in the animal model, but no. <clears throat> we see it in our in our patients. There's a, There can be, in, in, in somebody who's adopted a really strong ketogenic diet, they can have this inexplicable morning blood sugar spike. And we think that probably what's going on is, is some sort of a, you know, a nighttime cortisol sort of a, a, adrenaline surge referred to as the, the dawn phenomena, breaking down muscle, turning it into glucose. And so the bulletproof coffee you're talking about using in the morning, and I have um, to my patients recommended, you know, a little bit of a nighttime fat snack um, with some good result, you know, just something little to, to, to see if we can, I don't know, tie it over. And, and then we, we're monitoring ketones and blood sugar really carefully at this point. So you'll get pretty immediate feedback um, as to whether or not what you're doing works. I have tried complex, just a very small amount of complex carbohydrate at night um, as well. Um, how about you? Anything else on that? Uh, I, no, I've been, I've been pretty straightforward. If somebody needs to have food in the evening, then I say have it with a high-fat snack, yeah. Or if they're not getting enough total calories in, they, um, I don't want them breaking down more. Um, yes. You know, so I will say, you know, add something at bedtime. Um, so, you know, especially people in treatment, they're, um, 
their appetite is so dysregulated and their um, their food preferences get all messed up. Their, yep. you know, the sight of smells of food um, can often turn them off to eating. And then you combine that with the effect of the ketogenic diet on appetite, um, yep. you know, suppresses appetite. Uh, so, you know, that's, you know, part of what you have to monitor, especially in those those first few weeks. But, you know, there's another thing right there, short-term fasting around chemotherapy. I am a huge fan of that. I see that in, in uh, the people that I work with. They're reluctant to do it. Um, they might go through a cycle of chemotherapy and then the next time around approach it with fasting before and after the, the chemotherapy. And they feel so much better. They feel so much better. You know, this one woman, she was like in, in bed after her first chemotherapy infusion. The next time she did it was short-term fasting. She was out walking with her daughter the next afternoon. Mm. So, I, you know, there, there's, I'll send you that. Um, you, I'm sure you're aware of it, too. There's a, a very readable case series from uh, Panda and Longo. Um, and it sort of it lays that out. And, and that, they're the ones that are really looking at, at that. They're looking at it in terms of standard diet, though. So you have to put the standard diet filter on when you read their work and say, well, you know, what would it be? How more robust an effect would they get uh, if, if they were doing this from a ketogenic diet rather than a standard diet? Yes, right, right, right. Speaking of references, so send that to me and I'll post it on your page. Also, folks, you'll find a lot of good references on, on Dr. Seyfried's page. A lot of his full texts are available for free, so there's a bunch of links there. Fats. Good. Right, well, let's talk about fats and what fats you're recommending and why. Um, well, I believe, and this comes from you know following Volick and Finney, and initially uh, they were the only ones really writing about quality of fat in, in the beginning, um, that we really can do best with the uh, combination of saturated fats and um, unsaturated fats. So, uh, so th I watch for the balance, and, and th that's why I like that tool chronometer, because mm -hmm. uh, there's an option on chronometer. It has this dashboard dial that shows you, if you're faithful about putting in your, your, all of the foods and supplements that you're using, it shows you your omega-6 to omega-3 ratio. And once people have that dialed in, then they, they don't need to use that tool all the time once they know that they've got that balance in, uh, in check. So that's one really important thing. Uh, but, you know, basically saturated fats, which have, of course, been vilified, um, are a really important part of this diet. And they are highly digestible compared to some of the oils. So I, you know, I really like people to think about every place they can that they can throw a little bit more saturated fat into it. They're going to get the, the um, polyunsaturates and the monounsaturates out of their foods and out of things like you know, nuts and seeds um, without having to pile on a lot of oil, which you know, certain oils are going to be pretty inflammatory. And the ones that aren't, you, you can get tired of them pretty quickly. Um, but yeah, you know, as far as the, and the quality of fat the best quality that you can get. So if you're eating animal fat, uh, or dairy fats, you want it from very clean animals. Uh, and the lipid profiles of animals that are, uh, fed on pasture, um, are so much better than the lipid pro profiles of animals that are fed or finished with grain. Perfect. Now, you know, we just talked about, obviously, dairy protein, avoiding that. However, 
the um, dairy fat is a different story. Yeah. I mean, you're going to be using yeah. it, like if you're using butter, I'm assuming you're recommending ghee or maybe minimizing butter just so you're reducing the amount of protein exposure. Right. I mean, uh, what you know, you if somebody's had a problem, then um, then I'll minimize butter. But if they don't like the taste of ghee, I mean, yeah. obviously ghee is the better product. But if they don't like the taste of it, uh, then I don't want to throw one more obstacle into yep. them getting enough fat. So it's like, yeah, I'll go for the butter. You can clarify butter. You can just melt butter and the solids will sink to the bottom and then you just drain off the butter oil and that has virtually no protein in it. Yeah. Yep. So, um, yeah, so you've solved the problem and you've kept the taste. Um, coconut oil, you know, or medium chain triglycerides, you're using those, I'm sure. Um, yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. just any comments on, on them? I mean, obviously we can pump them into ketones pretty quickly. What do you think? Well, this is the problem, and I go into this in my book. Uh, I spend a lot of time on this in my book because I think it's really important for people to get this, and there's a mm -hmm. lot of misinformation floating around. You'll see uh, coconut oil, and I'll say, uh, rich in MCTs, over 50% MCTs. That's because technically, lauric acid, which is a 12-carbon chain, is considered a medium chain triglyceride and that's predominantly what's in coconut oil yes. and yes it lauric acid has lots of benefits um it, you know it's it's antimicrobial and antiviral um so there's there's an antifungal too so there's good reasons to include coconut oil but it's not because it's ketogenic only 14 percent of coconut oil are the more ketogenic oils the c8 and the c10 the 8 and 10 carbon um, chains. Uh, so if you're going for bang for your buck for higher ketosis, if you want to boost your ketones with a food supplement like MCT oil, um, then, you know, you go for either the straight C8, the caprylic acid, or you go for the C8 and C10 combo, which is more common and less expensive. But the caveat here is that a lot of people, a lot of young people don't have any problem with it. Yes. As people get older, for each decade, they seem to be less and less tolerant yes. of MCT, gastric distress, diarrhea. Yes. Uh, and so what's the good of it? What, you know, it's not doing you any good if that's what's going to happen when you take it. Right. So, uh, yeah, so just small amounts of it until you're sure you can tolerate the small amounts and build up slowly. But, boy, it's a, it's a wonderful addition to... Uh, to boost the ketones because anytime you're boosting ketones, you're also suppressing gluconeogenesis because you're not needing as much glucose if you have sufficient amounts of ketones in the body. So you're, you're, you're not, you know, your intake is going to be the same of carbohydrate low, but at, uh, you're not turning on gluconeogenesis in, in the liver if you can keep ketones providing the bulk of the energy. You are recommending people monitor blood sugar carefully and um, monitor um, blood ketones. Um, and we use urine ketones also just because the ketone strips for blood. Oh, I do too. Yep. Expensive. Okay. So just talk about what you're doing and, and are you, you know, and maybe see for Seyfried's index and just kind of, kind of talk about monitoring your patients. What do you recommend? Okay. Uh, in the beginning, I don't want people, um, you know, I don't want people stressing over this. I think there's important reasons to get to where you want to be with it. But um, so in the beginning, I just have them get used to using um, uh, a, a glucose meter, uh, a home meter. 
uh, and testing fasting blood glucose because in the beginning you don't have that you don't have the um, dawn effect and you don't have the yeah. uh, the physiological insulin resistance developing that quickly so people get an idea of what their fasting levels are and it's motivating because they'll see it come down rather quickly um, so then uh, at the same time, using the urine ketone sticks, and I ask people to do it like three times a day when they wake up, sometime in the afternoon, and when they go to bed. Pretty simple routine. Again, motivating. It also helps with compliance and accountability. You know, people do things inadvertently sometimes, or or just the thought that they may not uh, get a good reading on a strip. They may be able to uh, to you know say no to something that isn't keto friendly. Uh, so, and like you said, they're inexpensive, so they, you know, just use them. Um, but at the same time, getting people up to speed with, uh, with testing blood ketones, um, because that's going to give you a more accurate picture of what's going on in that individual's body. The simultaneous testing of glucose and ketones is what, uh, Thomas Seafried uses for what he calls his glucose ketone index. So there's a, a I explain that in the book. Uh, or you could get his paper, that one of his papers is specifically on that. You take glucose, which is expressed in milligrams per deciliters here in the U.S. You divide it by 18, you got the millimoles. You divide that by what you see on your ketone meter, and that gives you uh, hopefully a number somewhere between 1.0 and 2.0. Uh, definitely lower is better for brain cancer. Uh, for people with metastatic disease, I often see numbers closer to two or even maybe two and a half to three uh, because they can't get their, either they can't get their glucose down as low or they're not getting their ketones up as much. Um, and that's where ketone supplements can, can help, the, ones that, the new ones that are out on the market. Well, uh, they can give you a little boost in that department. Okay. And I'm going to actually, folks, I'll throw the... Um the paper that Miriam just mentioned, the safe read paper with the glutone ketone index calculator in it. Um, or actually his, his, I don't know if there's a calculator in it, but he does write it up. Well, it's a, it's a calculation. And the, yeah. the thing that I tell people is, you know, this is a guide. Uh, it, it doesn't have to hit the target every time you're, you're a human and there's going to be variations in your body. Um, inflammation from treatment, like people test after they've had radiation. It's like, of course it's going to be, you know, it's going to be way off because you, you are, you know, killing cells and it's creating yep. inflammation and that drives up glucose and that suppresses it does. ketones. That's right. So it's very catabolic yeah. and you're breaking down muscle and then you've got sort of fuel to make more sugar. That's right. It, so it's yeah. hard. It's I mean, for me, I, in in our patient population, it's been pretty difficult to kind of get the perfect, you know, the perfect one between one and two. You know, and sometimes we're in the low twos, or or it's just it's can be challenging to achieve. And with each decade, it's with each decade that passes, kids get there. Kids are below one, mm. and people in their twenties and thirties can generally yes. hit one. And I but think, it's the rare person in their seventies that hits one. Yeah, and I think younger men, you know, having testosterone, yeah. it just seems to turn the volume up on metabolism yeah. and they can, and they can um, produce more ketones or more actively. Um, so then we look at this, you know, it just makes me think of supporting um, fat metabolism, beta oxidation. And we've talked about, you know, using a little bit of carnitine and testing for carnitine. So they get 
you know, fat adapted, fat, you know, or keto adapted. So they're actually able to start to make ketones and then use ketones. I mean, that can be a little bit of a process with some lag time. I'm very, very careful with carnitine because yeah. we use carnitine with our son and uh, to encourage some linear growth because the ketogenic diet in kids, a really rigorous one, does impair linear growth. So we used uh, just two grams a day. And we did it for eight weeks, had an MRI, and his tumor was metabolically active. So we cut it out two months later, had another MRI, and he was back to where he had been. So mm. I'm very careful. I, uh, I, I think that our bodies do a good job of sorting this out um, after the first few months. Um, so I, I do just replacement doses. So maybe just it comes in like 330s, so 330s. 660 over the counter might be 250 or 500 um, and just very carefully if I'm going to use it at all but I would rather see somebody just eat a couple of meat meals a, me a week um, or uh, su support with lysine because lysine yep. combines with methionine and will make carnitine yep. and lysine is a ketogenic amino acid so you're not going to be raising blood glucose by taking that one. Okay, that's fair enough. I do, you know, and we test it, you know, we can test carnitine. It's yeah. pretty easy, yeah. you know, easy mm -hmm. test to get insurance coverage on. So I think I, I hear your caution. And especially if you're not actually looking at values and confirming that, in, in fact, it's rock bottom. Absolutely. Um, it, uh, yeah, I mean, I think your experience speaks volumes. And yes, as you mentioned, lysine, I know we've Should we say about something about why people need carnitine or what's going on there? Yeah, mm -hmm, sure. Go for it. Okay. Um, so carnitine is, uh, is, is used to transport um, long-chain fatty acids across the mitochondrial membranes. So you can imagine that in um, fatty acids, um, the medium chain ones don't need that kind of transport. The long chain ones do. So in, with robust fatty acid oxidation, there's an upregulation of the usage of carnitine and upregulation in the biosynthesis of it as well. Um, but it may not keep up in the beginning. So the, we, what I see when people can test is um, it may impact it in the first couple of months. You see, uh, you know, low carnitine. Um, but over time, it, you know, might supplement for a little bit, but test it again. Yes. Always test it again a few months after that, and you most likely will see levels back in the normal range. And it tends to be associated with, you know, the experience of fatigue, you know, before mm -hmm. they're really in the groove of using right. ketones. And then there's actually generally, in my experience, you know, a nice bump of energy when their body's actually really able to utilize them. Um, right. We are coming to a close here i feel like i could go on with the questions i what just what what are you using are you used for for measuring ketones and glucose what's the instrument that you're recommending Is there oh, any okay a good question um i i personally i have not had good experiences with the novamax i don't think it's very accurate at the lower ranges of uh, ketosis um so i have traditionally used the precision extra Sometimes uh, people will have two different meters, the glucose, um, a separate glucose meter, because the um, strips, the glucose strips for the precision extra are pretty expensive, and the ketone strips are really expensive. Mm -hmm. But I, in San Diego, uh, just last month, there's a new meter on the market called Keto Mojo. And um, mm. I've signed up for one. I don't have it yet. Uh, I should be getting it in the next week or so, and then I will be comparing it as will so many of the people that I know in my world. 
will be comparing the accuracy of this to the Precision Extra because those strips are just a dollar a piece. Oh, isn't that true? As opposed to, right, you have to get, if you, if you want to buy them for, you know, under five or six dollars, you got to order them out of Canada or, or Australia, and that's highly inconvenient um, with the Precision Extra. But the, and, and the other thing that is so wonderful about this Keto Mojo, or you know, love this, um, is that it adjusts for hematocrit. So when you're working with somebody with cancer and they have low hematocrit, um, there's a separate reagent on the strip and it's, it's uh, feeding into an algorithm that's going to adjust the glucose level to, um, to what would be an, you know, a more accurate assessment of what that person's blood glucose level is and not skewed by their low hematocrit. Mm. So I think that's amazing. Um, you know, that, that, there are some meters out there that are better than others, but I think to have all of it in one tidy little package for people with cancer would be great. Yes, that's right. That's very cool. Yep. I'm just, I'm looking at it right now. I put the, put the website on, on the um, show notes. So keto-mojo.com. Um, yeah. yeah. And it looks yeah. like they've obtained FDA approval for it as a medical device. They have. Yes. Oh yeah. God. I met the guy that uh, uh, developed the company and, um, and you know, he's passionate. He's doing this because he's doing it for the greater good. Um, he's going to make a ton of money off of it as well. If, if his product proves to be, uh, as accurate as precision extra, and he's, he's done that internal testing himself. Um, so he's pretty confident, but I, I just can't wait for it to get into the hands of the researchers who are using these and see what they have to say about it. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's well. He hasn't. He hasn't offered the device for for research yet. They don't have any. He did not. Yet. Well, that's interesting. No, nope, he just kept it all in house for the uh, unveiling. So he unveiled it wow. in uh, San Diego the early August, and um, the people that signed up then are getting theirs in the next week or so. Um, I've got tons of questions, but we're going to wrap up now, and I'm going to just encourage you to reach out to. Um, uh, go to Miriam's website, check out what she's doing, and without question, grab her book when it's available. And again, it's called um, Keto for Cancer, and it's Chelsea Green. Uh, again, thank you so much for joining me today, and, Miriam. You know, and, yeah. and I want to say, I welcome feedback from people, and I don't mean, you know, something written as a review in Amazon, but, you know, that's great too. Um, but I welcome feedback on that book from people because I have the opportunity to make changes in it for a second printing, and I would like to incorporate what, um, what your audience knows. What oh, that's perfect. Know. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah. That's, that's who I am, and that's where I'm at with this, is I really want to, to, to formulate the best keto for cancer diet out there. And, you know, you can start the dialogue, folks, right on the um, comments page on the, on, the, on the show notes, and then we'll just shoot those, those comments over to Miriam, and then she'll respond accordingly. I mean, that can be a starting. I'm sure there's a way to access you from your website as well. Um, it's an important opportunity for all of us to dialogue. There's a lot of unknowns. You know, we've got there some knowns and yeah. And so it's important if you're a clinician using this in practice and you're seeing some interesting labs or, you know, there's a pearl or, or a couple of important, you know, t good anecdotes you can share with us by all means. Um, I would love to hear from you as well. All right. That's great. Thank you, Kara. Absolutely. My pleasure.